0: Brought to you by Lifetree at Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com. Boy, that's, I, I say that five times fast. Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com. I like to call it Prat G. That's,
1: that's usually, <laughs> how we put it
0: on the st- It's probably not the greatest, <laughs> <laughs> the greatest acrostic in history, yeah. <laughs> so my name is Rick. I'm the author of the Jesus Centered Life and editor of the Jesus Centered Bible. You know what Becky, the Becky Nader, <laughs> did here? She, She's, she's testing out her theory that she can write anything <laughs> on our notes, and I'll say it. And so she wrote on here the jesus entered Cranberry Bible. But I'm smarter than that. I think I've proven that now, that, that I am not just Ron Burgundy reading the teleprompter.
1: Everyone's going to be so disappointed. I know. <laughs> we plotted that.
0: Oh, so close and yet so far away. So I'm also the author of the soon-to-be-released book uh, in April, kind of mid-April, called Spiritual Grit, and I'm here with the Becky Nader, you heard her, going curses to her evil scheme. So today we're continuing our month-long focus on what does a reset in your life look like, and kind of under the umbrella of the message of spiritual grit that we're going to be coming back to in a variety of ways this year, because there's so many spokes on that wheel. At the the center of spiritual grit is, how do we live our life with strength and conviction when we are so often have an empty well of that, <laughs> and because of the everyday things that we face in our life? And You know, Becky and I are going through things right now, each of us together and separately, that are sapping us, really, of our own resources of strength and conviction, and so what happens when that's your place, and what we're doing is exploring how an intimate, growing relationship with Jesus helps not only fuel our strength, but uh, give us the sort of core strength that allows us to persevere when our normal conventional perseverance gives out. So, so that's that's where we're at, and this month we're focusing on what a reset in our life is, is like, and we've mostly been looking kind of inside so far, like, what, what, what does this mean for me? Today we're going to look outside of ourselves. We're going to explore, what does it mean to be a source of reset for others in your life? I guess that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it's a great way. So how do you look outside of yourself to the relationships you're involved in, and how, how do you learn to to grow in the way that you engage the people that matter to you in life in such a way that you're actually loving them? So that sounds kind of funny, actually loving. But last week we explored what a self-differentiated life means, and that means that that you maintain your identity even though there's powerful forces around you that are working to try to mold you into something else, and that's actually a way of loving the people around you, because when you're a self-differentiated person, you end up transforming the environments around you, transforming the people around you. And and so the outcome of of living in a self-differentiated way is that the people around you become transformed and changed for the better but that's just one piece of it. What, what is it? How, how do we live our lives in such a way that the people that we touch in relationship are made better from their encounters with us? Um, how does that work? So we're going to look outside of ourselves today, and the, the way we're going to do this is explore something that is rather controversial in the book that is about to release in Spiritual Grit. I know it's controversial, because I've already been engaging people about this message for more than a year, and having also side conversations with people about the book for more than a year, and one of the things that has really caused people to stop and really wrestle with is a a thread that runs through the book of the difference between compassion and empathy. And in the book I make the case that Jesus, by extension, because he's the perfect representation of God, if if you see Jesus, you see God. So Jesus is not primarily empathetic in the way that he relates to people. He's compassionate but not empathetic. And I am therefore, I say in the book, that the way that we can uh, relate to others and encounter others that helps to go, uh, to grow their core strength and helps to love them into well-being needs to be more compassionate but not empathetic. So, Becky, when I say the word empathy, I mean, what what comes to mind for you?
1: Well, I think a lot of people would probably be confused by saying, well, how is, com- how is empathy not compassion, or how is compassion not empathy? These <clears throat> words get used
0: interchangeably, interchangeably
1: mm-hmm. in different environments, and so we'll go into a little bit more in depth of what we mean by the word empathy and what we mean by the word compassion, but when I think of empathy— I think of times when you're in the mud pit and you have people who are actually w- willing to go down into that mud pit and just be with you down there, that they are not afraid to waddle through and get mud on them. It doesn't mean that they, they you know get as deep in the mud, but they, they might get dirty and it's it's dirty down there and there's some backlash from it, but they're not afraid to go into that place and take on that um, level of commitment to you um, and you're by des- doing that.
0: And you're describing why e- empathy, and this has my, been my experience too as I talk to people about this, you're describing why empathy is almost universally seen as a positive thing. I, you don't meet people who say, oh, empathy's not any good. But when you start actually exploring in greater depth the underpinnings of empathy, there are plenty of people who have questions about it and we're going to explore this through sort of an epic story, uh, an epic encounter that Jesus has that I, 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 do- I doubt that you've ever looked at this story through the lens that we're about to look at it through. So we're going to explore how did Jesus love people, and why did he love people the way that he did? Because of course we're called, above all else, to love people. That, that's our primary calling. There are three things, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these things is love. We all accept that loving others is our highest calling in relationship, and we're also simultaneously invited into Jesus' mission, which is to set captives free. So what does freedom-producing love look like, I think, is the question. What does that look like in our everyday life? This is, uh, uh, you know, just as a little sidelight here, this question that I just said, what does freedom-producing love look like, captivates me. It's what my life challenge is all about. Um, I'm not making the case, and I, you'll hear me say this later, I'm not making the case that I have this dialed in. Um, I am trying to explore what a love that helps set captives free looks like in my life, and it's not like I have a great template coming out of my own family experience. It's not like I already knew what that looked like. I'm having to learn like we talked about in in our last episode, I'm having to learn how to play piano as an adult, and that's a lot harder than to learn it as a kid. But I'm hoping that my kids have a different definition of love, having grown up in our family than I did. They have a a head start that I didn't have into what freedom-producing love really looks like. I hope so, because if they learn piano when they're young, they they can play throughout their life, and, and that's what I'm really hoping for. So today we'll explore this difference between empathy and compassion, and the territory that we cover is going to seem strange sometimes to you. I just want to warn you in advance, and I just want to encourage you, hang in there. Let it sink in a little bit before you kind of have a knee-jerk reaction. Just let it sink in a little bit as we go into some of this strange and new territory. And I I thought I'd start out by um, telling you the story uh, that opens my book, Spiritual Grit. I'm not going to read it from the book. I'll just retell the story that opens it, and it really, this story was really the the tiny mustard seed that started the huge tree that Spiritual Grit, the book, has become. This little seed is what was planted in me and what led me to eventually write an entire book about this. So my youngest daughter, Emma, is now in high school in her freshman year, but I started writing Spiritual Grit when she was still in middle school, and... Uh, we have a bus stop on the corner of our cul-de-sac, and every morning, uh, Emma would go to the corner. Since she was in middle school, it was still sort of okay if I walked with her to the bus stop. Oh, She tolerated it. She
1: tolerated it. it. She, used
0: to, she used to beg me to do it. Aww. She wanted me to go to the bus stop with her. <laughs> but then, you know, what happens is the older you get, the more like, Dad, can you walk like five paces behind me? <laughs> so it was in that kind of mode in her eighth grade year. And I would still go to the bus stop, but I kept a, a, a appropriate distance behind her. And I also walked our dog uh, in the morning to the bus stop. So we would walk. This was our kind of pattern. We'd walk to the bus stop. I'd just stand there awkwardly while my daughter talked with her friends. And people would uh, you know, wait for the bus to show up. We live in Denver. And so in the cold winter months, it's really cold. It's as cold as you think it's supposed to be in Denver. It's bone chilling cold. And so there were many times where we would walk to the corner bus stop, and, you know, the kids were just miserable, because on average, they had to wait like five or six minutes for the bus to show up, and it was five or six minutes of hell for these kids. They, you know, they would try to distract themselves, and they would complain about the cold. And, but one day, I noticed something new started happening. As we were walking to the corner, I saw one, and then two, and then three SUVs kind of pull into the cul-de-sac, turn around— and come back and park near where the bus stop was. And they just sat there idling. And this happened the first day, and I thought, oh, that's a little odd. And then the second day it happened again, and I thought, that's really odd. And then the third day I thought, who's in these cars? And I looked inside, and it was all moms who were sort of— um, you could tell that they that they had just kind of thrown some clothes on and jumped in the car. And what I realized is that they each one of these SUVs had a— boy in the back of the SUV who was in there to stay warm until they heard this kind of the screech of the air brakes of the bus kind of slowing down to the bus stop, and then they would just jump out of the back door and run to the, to the bus and get on the bus right away. And then as soon as the bus le- left, the, these SUVs would pull out and go the block or two back to wherever their home is, because our neighborhood is a circle drive, so I know that they weren't bringing their their boys from very far away. It was only a block or two. So uh, one day no I saw... No girls, just no, all boys. It was all boys. Okay. And I I don't know what to make of that. But I, uh, all I know is that the more I realized what was happening, the more it bothered me. And and so finally, one day I was walking to the corner with Emma, and I said, Emma, you see what's happening here, these, these SUVs that are here? This really bugs me. And she's like, what? What's the problem? And I said... Well, I know that these moms feel compassion for their boys, and they're trying to keep them from seven minutes of frigid cold by driving them here, and it's because they feel empathy for what their boys have to face, but they are not helping their sons. And Emma looked at me and goes like, well, I don't get it. If they asked me to sit in the back of their SUV, I would. I wish somebody would ask me to do that. And I said, well, the point is, I can see down the line that what they're doing is they're, they're sapping the opportunity their, their boys have to face a mild hardship in their childhood, waiting seven minutes at the bus stop when you're cold, thinking that that is a loving, empathetic thing to do, but what they don't realize is that down the line, those boys are going to grow up, and they're going to need all the strength they can get to persevere in life through marriage issues and work issues and changes and health, health stuff. They're going to need strength. And removing strength from them right now is not a loving thing to do if you're thinking about what happens to them down the line.
1: I'm going to do a little quote from Spiritual Grit Uh here.
0: You've memorized something from (laughs) Spiritual Grit? Well,
1: I've made like 90 quote memes from this book (laughs) and written prompts, and I remember one of the quotes that I pulled from this section because it was definitely the the introduction of this book, which we should have up— A sample chapter very soon, so check back um, with us, but it it is such a great intro, and this part was a really good part that really was thought-provoking and gave such a great example. But you actually wrote in this part, you said, love cares as much about the future as it does the present.
0: Yeah. And, and so yeah, that's what you're talking about. That's 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 right. And, and we don't often think in those terms. And, and actually, when I shared all this with Emma, she looked at me like I was an alien. <laughs> like, what the heck are you talking she about? Her eyes. See, it's I. It's the eye roll. I get an eye roll every day though. So it's <laughs> like, what? Why, Dad? Why are you so weird? But I, I was passionate about it because I was trying to plant something in her as well that said, look, when I don't remove hardship from your life this is why, Emma, uh, because I'm really loving you in the future, not just now, because love uh, loves all the time, not just in the present moment. So that story opens the book because it kind of peels back the lid a little bit on the dark side of empathy, because I understand. I'm a fellow traveler parent. I My kids go through hardships too, and as a parent, your kind of knee-jerk default reaction is to remove hardship from their life, because that feels like love. I get it. I'm a parent too, and I have all of the same inclinations. But what gives me pause is trying to consider what love actually is. Not what it feels like in the moment, but what, what love actually is for my daughters and for the people that I care about. So I, I mentioned before that our mission, our shared mission with Jesus, is to set captives free. So love always brings freedom, never captivity that's a good way to think about what what love looks like. It always brings freedom, it never brings captivity. And my point is that empathy, in the way it's often defined and practiced in our lives, obliterates the boundaries of other people, because it attempts to step into the emotional shoes of another person. So if you think about it, now here's one of those moments when I said it's going to sound strange, this sounds strange, but empathy, its definition of empathy, let me just quickly give you a definition of empathy, it's a psychological identification with or vicarious experiencing of the feelings, thoughts, and attitudes of another person. It's that part, the vicarious experiencing of another person's feelings, thoughts, and attitudes. Vicarious means that you step into their emotional shoes, and if you think about what that requires, it means that I have to move past your boundaries into you to be able to experience your emotions and thoughts and uh, to vicariously experience those things and so by definition we're talking about an issue of boundaries here so if love always brings freedom not captivity but I am sort of transgressing your boundaries by trying to get inside your emotional shoes it means that um, that I'm actually taking away something from you that, is good for you to have. I'm, I'm I'm removing something that actually is good for you to have." So we, we ask, oh, well, what's wrong? What's wrong with feeling the feelings of another person? What's wrong with that? So we're gonna, as I mentioned, explore that in more depth by not just spouting about it, but we're gonna try to focus on Jesus and try to answer that question through paying better attention to how he relates with people. So We'll, we'll get to that in just a minute, but Becky, I wanted you to share a little bit about what you shared with me earlier today as we were talking about this. If you've been a listener for a while to this podcast, you know that Becky has shared before that she's had a painful thread through her life of miscarriage, and not just one miscarriage, but multiple ones. And sometimes it's hard for me, when I hear your story, Becky, it's hard for me to fathom how you have uh, summited the grief of each of these each time. When somebody has a trauma like that happen to them in their life, our friends naturally want to love and express care and concern for us, and they often don't know quite how to do it, especially if it's a very painful thing like this. So why don't you share a little bit about your experience with, with this, and, and the, your experience of how people have responded to this pain in your life?
1: Well, I, I, I did an episode on They Say Podcast uh, with my friend Steph. We did um, an episode called What Your Infertile Friend um, Wishes That You Knew, um, where we shared kind of both of our stories and, and experiences in this time where people don't really know how to deal with you. And one of the things that I learned very early on in this process was that There were certain people that I just couldn't tell every single time this happened. And the reason is because it was so upsetting to them. It hurt them so badly because they cared so much about me that what would happen is then I would be suddenly in a position where I'm barely kind of holding it together and I'm dealing with my own grief in my own way. And now suddenly they're falling apart and I have to help them through that. And that was a really unhelpful thing for me in that time because I didn't know quite how to articulate how I even felt about it. And so now I am um, basically comforting someone else for what's happening to me. Um, And so that became a really hard thing. And the other thing that happened kind of consistently was – that um especially early on this this stopped happening the more that this um kept being a problem and the longer it existed and also the more that I started communicating what I didn't didn't need but early on the people kept saying it's going to be okay you're going to have a baby or it's god's going to heal this or they would make v- very blatant promises to me that they really had no business making because They couldn't keep them, and so those two things kind of stood out as, you know, they were doing that because they loved me, and they wanted to take away the pain I was experiencing. They wanted to tell me that there was hope and compassion, but what was on the other side of that is that if they were wrong, did that mean it wasn't going to be okay? It's going to be okay because God's going to fix this. Well, what if he doesn't fix it? Does that mean it's not going to be okay? Um, And so those kinds of things then, you know, plant other kinds of fears in your heart, and they're not helpful. So those were times when I experienced people kind of going past the boundaries of compassion and pushing into a place where they weren't setting me free.
0: Right. And it can feel like a courageous, emotionally vulnerable thing to do, to try to step into the emotional shoes of another person. It's all... All well-meaning, well but, but if we stand back from this and exa- and just listen to the story, that the brief story you just told, what actually happened in this situation is a person who was already burdened was further burdened by the empathetic response of another person, and of course they didn't intend for that to happen. We stumble into this, and we, we don't always understand the dynamics of what our empathy does, and how it can uh, have a cascading impact in the, in the lives of others around us. So the, the question here is not about whether we are emotionally vulnerable when we care for others. That's a given, and, we, and we'll see that when we uh, dive into this story with Jesus. Uh, it's not about whether we care about the well-being of other people, it's considering what well-being actually is, and what the takeaway for that person is relative to their well-being. If well-being is the true goal of our love for others, then well-being can take many forms, but one thing it won't do is add to the burden of the of a person who's burdened. It will uh, bring freedom, not captivity, to them. So it's important for us to, I think, pause right here, and acknowledge that there are wide uh, definitions of what empathy really is. People use this word and they can mean vastly different things. So we thought it would be good to um, take a a moment here to listen to someone who's sort of an acknowledged, you might say, guru of empathy. Her name is Brene Brown. You may have heard her speak before. Her TED Talk on vulnerability I think is the most watched TED Talk of all time, and she wrote best-selling books out of the attention that this TED Talk got, and one of the things that was very powerful about what she shared in the context of vulnerability is she talked about what empathy is and compared that to sympathy, and she was extolling the virtues of empathy and and, and basically contrasting that with sympathy, which she um, had some disdain for, really. So. We thought we would have you listen to her very short two-and-a-half-minute YouTube video that focuses on what empathy is, encourage you to go watch it yourself, we'll put a link to it on this page, but we're going to pause here and just listen to what Brene Brown says about empathy, and we're doing this so that we can get at kind of what our definitions are here, so that when we enter into the story about Jesus, we're, we're all using sort of the same language. So let's listen to Brene Brown on empathy. All right, so there's Brene Brown on empathy. Again, we have a link to that, and actually the longer version of her of her talk that that was a part of. You can you, know, you can check out either the short version or the long version. We just heard the short version. Let's just uh, go back over what you just heard just for a second, and then Becky and I will talk about this a little bit. She's referencing four components of what she calls empathy, and one is perspective taking. So understanding the perspective of another person. The second thing is to respond not within judgment, not in a a spirit of judgment. It's hard. Yeah. And the third is recognizing emotion in other people, knowing what those emotions are. And then the fourth thing is communicating what those emotions are, you know, reflecting back what those emotions are. And then she said her kind of general definition of empathy is feeling with people. So... What we're trying to do here is kind of get out our definitions of what this is, and I had mentioned to Becky before when I watched this that I think what Brene Brown is describing is compassion, not empathy. She's she's describing someone who comes alongside somebody and offers emotional presence and support without trying to fix the problem for them. And uh, the way I would describe this, is uh, the way I often use to describe the difference between compassion and empathy, is empathy sees somebody drowning in the ocean and says, oh no, they're going to die unless I give them help. And so they jump into the surf and swim out to the drowning person and try to save them. And uh, lifeguards will tell you that's exactly the wrong thing to do with a drowning person, because that drowning person is desperate and they're likely to pull you underneath the surf along with them, and you both end up dead. The, the correct way to help someone who's drowning in the surf is to stand on the shore and throw them a lifeline, a, a, something that they can grab onto and hold onto, and you can pull them to safety then. And th- these two things, I, I, I think, illustrate the vast difference between these. Empathy means swimming out to be in their space— compassion means maintaining your space between the two, but offering help and a lifeline for the person. And if the goal is to save the drowning person, then in this illustration, compassion is the only way to save them. And Brene Brown hints at this a little bit in saying, you know, we we don't want to have responses that are like, well, at least it's not this, because that's an attempt to try to fix their emotional problem. Or, and we also respect the person's boundaries by not trying to do the work for them, we just offer them our, our presence. So I believe what Brene Brown is really describing is more like compassion than empathy in the way that I'm defining these. She's not describing the vicarious entry into somebody else's space, emotional space, here. So what did you think when you, when you listened to this, Becky?
1: Well, I, I I think that um, this and also we should just mention this is a video that we're playing into this. So, what you can't hear is that there's illustrations that are being played that really help to to better illustrate what's going on. So, the person who was displaying empathy actually cro- cl- like climbed down into this like pit um, with this person and sat with him, whereas the other person who was displaying sympathy, just kind of like popped their head out. It didn't affect their normal daily life. They weren't really interested in getting that involved. You know, they weren't going to, eh, I don't want to get that involved. So you can, when you watch that, you'll see more of, of what was happening there. But I think it's such a great example of how to come alongside someone in a genuine way and offer support without fixing their problem. And, The reason why we don't fix the problem is because it it implies that that person isn't strong enough to fix the problem for themselves or that Jesus isn't strong enough to fix that problem. And that what that person really needs in that moment is just to be heard and to be understood and to have their feelings validated, um, that is what a person who's in that state needs. And then w- what happens is then Jesus can kind of help move forward and, and and move that in a different direction.
0: Yeah, I mentioned before. I uh, so here's a here's a bizarre example of this. I had somebody uh, a few years ago tell me, "Oh, you should watch this film called Lars and the Real Girl," and I said, "What? I I think I know what that movie's about." Why would you want me to watch that? Oh, it's one of the greatest movies ever. You would love it, Rick. And I'm like, how can—do you even know me? That movie, the premise of the movie, is about a guy who's emotionally wrecked because of some uh, family situations that have happened to him, and he's he's retreated into this very dark place, and uh, to cope with his grief, he decides to order a full-size mannequin— from, uh, from a sex toy store. It's, it's, and this, this is exactly
1: is, the kind of thing that I right. see Rick and Bev doing. It's just
0: crazy. It. I can't even imagine myself ever watching a movie like this. But this friend kept persisting and saying, this is, you would love this movie and it's not what you think. So I said to my wife, let's watch the movie, and if we don't like it, we'll just turn it off. Well, it's one of the few movies I now own. Um, I don't usually buy a movie unless I want to watch it uh, multiple times. We own it because we still watch this movie, because it's such a powerful depiction of what I think compassion is versus empathy. And in the story—I'm not going to ruin it for you—but in the story, Lars, the the guy that is emotionally destroyed, gets this life-size mannequin, and he treats her as if she's a real person, and he tries to pass her off. To the townspeople in this small town he lives in as his real girlfriend. And you can imagine the chaos that ensues with this and the judgment that happens, but one group of people latches onto Lars and sees his whole story differently. They see past the surface of what's happening here, and they recognize that something really important is happening in, in Lars, and something terrible has happened to him, and he's trying to cope, and it's the little old ladies in the church in town, who, when they hear that uh, towards the end of this story that this mannequin girl that Lars thinks is real, is, he's actually taken the mannequin to the hospital because he perceives that she's dying. And so in a very frantic way, he tells everyone, you know, she's dying, she's dying, I have to go to the hospital. And these little old ladies show up at the hospital, and you see this scene where they're just sitting in the waiting room just waiting with Lars. And it's a crazy situation, obviously. It's a crazy situation, but these women treat it as a real situation for Lars, and they don't say anything. They don't try to make it better for him. They just sit with him. And one of the women says that what you do in a situation like this is you go and sit. And what what the movie is trying to say is the most powerful thing you can give somebody is your presence, not your fixing presence— just your presence, a presence that says, um, I care, and I'm in this with you. So I encourage you to see the film. Please don't write me if you're offended. (laughs) I've given you fair warning about what the premise of the film is, but I I just encourage you to watch it, because there are some very powerful scenes in this film. So that's a little stepping-off point, I think, into uh, the story we want to read today. So I'm going to read the story, and then the Becky Nader and I will re- react to what we read. So what I'd like you to do as I'm reading this, and it's a significant story here, so I'd like you to really focus on this filter between compassion and empathy, and think about that as you listen to what, how Jesus uh, reacted and interacted with his best friends on the face of the earth at the time. And they were uh, two sisters and a brother. The brother's name is Lazarus, and the two sisters are Martha and Mary. These are three people that Jesus hung out with when he just wanted to relax. He was close to them. He spent intimate, relaxed, casual time with them. They were his closest friends when he walked the earth. And something horrible happens. And that's where we'll pick up the story. It's in John chapter 11. And here's how it goes A man named Lazarus was sick, he lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick, so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, well, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. And finally, he said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? And Jesus replied, Well, there are twelve hours of daylight in every day, and during the day people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. Well, the disciples said, "Uh, Well, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. (laughs) And they thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. So, Thomas, nicknamed the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Hey, let's go too and die with Jesus. So, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, well, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection (coughs) and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying, and everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him, I have always believed you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. And then she returned to Mary, and she called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, The teacher is here, and he wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus's grave to weep, so they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? he asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him? But some said, This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell is going to be terrible. Jesus responded, Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. And then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here, so that they will believe that you sent me. And then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. So we'll stop there. And by the way, this story if you can put yourself in this place, it's, it's, it should not be a shock to know that this story just rocked the ancient world. The fact that this happened in front of so many people, and so many people told about what happened, the ripples of this story cascaded through the culture, and Jesus became known as an extraordinary person. This is what started to gather these enormous crowds around him because of what he did here. So this is an epic story, as we said before, but I said we would look at this through the lens of empathy versus compassion. So what, what are some things that stuck out for you, Becky, as you as you listen to this story?
1: First of all, Martha just gets a really bad rap. You know, usually it's like the Mary versus Martha, and Martha's yeah. like always like the one that's not doing the right thing. But in this story, people forget about this story. She really had she she showed such tremendous faith in this situation. And courage. And courage and um she was, you know, declarative to Jesus and
0: And while Mary stayed behind. She and was kinda it, mad. There's indicators that she was past mad. She was not only heartbroken, yeah. she was she could have been furious with Jesus for not having showed up in time. Mary doesn't go to greet him, but Martha does. Yep. And that I'm I'm with you. I think wow. So... And this is
1: the Mary who will later break the alabaster jar at yep. his feet yep. and weep and wipe her you know, so this is all part of her story and yeah. you know, who would later be, you know, paired for the rest of eternity as better than Martha for <laughs> yeah. sitting at the feet of Jesus and but this story in this story, Martha is the one who ran to Jesus immediately and um, and he he displayed a lot of compassion towards her, you know, he recognized her grief and but he still asked her to, to say, in the midst of this, who am I still? but yeah. who am I still even in the midst of this and she you know was was um declarative t- towards him that yeah even in the midst of this you are the messiah yeah in the midst of this horrible thing um where other people are kind of saying well who is jesus he's you know he could have prevented this and where was he and you know which um... of
0: which of course is true mm-hmm. the critics were were accurate where this story turns and what makes it have such an edge is that jesus purposefully allows Lazarus to die. He knows he's going to die if he waits. He references that to his disciples who don't get it, and then he bluntly says, he's dead, and I delayed my trip there on purpose. Now, think about this. This is not just a rhetorical story. These are real people Mm -hmm. with real things on the line, and if your brother was dying and you knew that Jesus, if he just came in time, he could cure his good friend Lazarus, of this disease, because they'd seen Jesus do it over and over again for strangers, people he'd never met before. Of course he would come and help Lazarus, and they beg him to come, and he delays. And in the meantime, Lazarus passes away, and now they 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 no longer have their brother. It's over now. Imagine what that would feel like for Jesus then to show up. And the, the truth that we have to embrace, the brutal reality we have to embrace in this story, is that Jesus was willing for his close friends to feel this, Mm -hmm. what they felt. And he says the reason he's willing to do that is he's desperate for people to believe. And he tells the disciples, I've delayed my trip so that you will firsthand experience the glory of God. He wants to make this a marker moment that people can never forget, that will build a foundation underneath their feet to trust and believe in him, and he is willing, for the sake of that long-term good, to sacrifice a short-term good for it.
1: This was also a dangerous thing. I mean, if you pay attention to the part where the disciples say, hey, let's go die with Jesus. Mm-hmm. They thought this that going here was dangerous enough that it could result in their death. And so they probably were like, hey, we should be keeping a low profile,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know? And instead, Jesus doesn't keep a low profile here. He decides to do something that caused a huge stir even though it was a very dangerous situation.
0: You've already mentioned when Martha comes to meet him, he uh, responds with compassion to her, you know, with his presence. He listens to her complaint without trying to defend himself. He simply tells her, your brother's going to rise again. He gives a promise of hope to her. And she's like, yeah, I get that, Jesus. In the end time, he's going to rise again, Yeah. But How does that help right now?
1: It's like when we say to people, well, we'll see them in heaven. When you're in the midst of grief like this, and it's this recent, that's not a helpful thing to hear. Right. Like, oh yeah, you know, when I die in 45 years, I'll get to see this person I love again. That's not a very compassionate thing to say. And
0: if Jesus' approach to Martha and Mary had been empathetic, vicariously stepping into their emotional shoes, he would have first of all, come in the first place, he would not have delayed, and when he got there, he would simply immerse himself in the emotions that they have. But you can see him standing outside of their emotional reality here, and when he says he'll rise again and Martha says, well, thanks a lot for that, basically, Jesus then says, clarifies himself. He's saying, I am actually the resurrection. The resurrection isn't a time and place later on, Resurrection is standing in front of you. I am the wellspring of life. And when life is in your presence, no death can exist. So he's saying, anyone who believes in me, that I am the resurrection, what he's really saying is, I'm the source of all life. Everyone who believes in me will live even if they've died. And everyone who lives in, in me and believes in me will never, ever die. And then he asks Martha this invitational question. Martha, do you believe what I'm saying? He's asking her to take a risk on what he's saying, that yes, you are the resurrection, you are the life. And it's so beautiful what Martha says, is she just simply says, yes, Lord, I've always believed you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world from God. And after this interchange, she goes back and says, I gotta get Mary out here. Like, I've got to get Mary here to encounter Jesus. So she kind of drags Mary back to talk to Jesus, and Mary is beside herself and says, if you had just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She throws this accusation out at him, because of course she's racked with grief and angry about it. And when Jesus saw her weeping, it says, and the people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up in him. Becky, what do you, how do you translate that? Where, where do you think the anger's coming from in this, in this place?
1: Well, he's frustrated because they still don't understand that he has the power to bring life back, and that um, he's trying to explain that to them. And I think, and probably in some ways, he wishes people would believe without him having to do these miraculous things. You know, and we feel that way. We don't get to to go around and do miracles so that people will come to know the Lord. And there's many people who spend their lives in ministry with the whole goal of wanting to bring people to know the Lord and to believe, and he's probably frustrated, like, why do I always have to resort back to... Yeah, that's good.
0: I love that. And and then what happens right after that is Jesus asks, where have you put him? And they, they take him to where they've put Lazarus, and he sees where Lazarus has been buried, and he sees the people wailing, and this is this moment where Jesus begins to weep And now you see the cost of what he's doing here. He is loving Mary, Martha, and everyone who ever sees this uh, event happen, and all of us who now hear about it as it's rippled throughout the centuries. He's loving all of us in the future with what he's doing right now, but he's also accepting the cost of the pain of it in the moment, because his dear friend is lying there dead, and he's he's recognizing, with his own emotions, the cost of that on everybody around this tomb, including himself, who loves Lazarus. And that's part of what compassion is. It's not unemotional uh, in, in the way that I'm describing it, uh, uh, as opposed to empathy. Compassion has the courage to show emotion and to connect emotionally with people, but not to transgress their boundaries around it. So Jesus weeps, and people say, look how much he loved him, they don't realize that he's also loving them. He's also feeling for them, and the grief that they're, they're feeling right now. And then he asks them to roll aside the stone, and they still, they're like, Martha's like, but Jesus, it's really you don't understand that uh, he, he really has been dead for four days! And it, it, it's to what you said before, Becky, part of what he's, he's communicating here is, I wish you could get this, that I am the source of life. And you'd have nothing to worry about me standing here, because nothing is impossible for me. I wish you could get this, because your grief would turn to joy sooner." And then he calls Lazarus out, and he comes out. And and then Lazarus, we know, because he shows up in the story later on, even uh, post-resurrection, Lazarus is part of the story, he goes on to live his life. Um, He becomes a part of the society again, the man who was dead for four days. It's, he is a living, breathing example of the glory of God. And if you think about this story in a certain way, Jesus gave his close friend Lazarus the honor of being the marker for his great power and glory, that Lazarus then becomes a living example of the reality of the Messiah to the people around him. Lazarus, for the rest of his life has that marker on him. Oh, you're the man who revealed the Messiah and his power over death. You're the man. What a gift to Lazarus. I mean, it, it, you would have to see it from the perspective of Jesus in order to embrace that in the moment, though. Let's transition out of this into a kind of our closing for the podcast today and talk a little bit about, okay, so what does this mean? We've seen Jesus model this, we've talked about the difference here what could this mean for us in everyday life? So one of the things I'll throw out is, um, uh, I mentioned this in the last podcast, this book, A Failure of Nerve, which I encourage you to go get and read. By Yeah,
1: this is the second time we've mentioned this book. Yeah. It, it, is, it is a really, really good book. It's the kind of book that takes a long time to read, though.
0: You'll have to take a slow journey through that. In fact, for me, I read books all the time, and, and uh, I had to read it like two pages at a time. Yeah, it's a lot. There's a lot to chew on in it, but in this book, uh, a failure of nerve. Edwin Friedman, the author, emphasizes something that sounds a little funny when you hear it, but he emphasizes the regulating our emotions as 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 people who are compassionate and not empathetic. And that means it sounds cold, but it really simply means how can you throw a lifeline from the shore out to a drowning person without actually diving into the water and getting into their space yourself? What, what does that look like? So that means that w- uh, regulating your emotions means that you don't join the person in their emotional space, you recognize their emotional space, but you offer them your presence and your forness for them in the midst of that space as a lifeline to help them move through their own darkness, so that th- it's their strength and their dependence on Jesus that, that is moving through the darkness with the assistance of your presence, your lifeline, instead of you trying to fix it for them. So that's what Friedman means by regulating our emotions. It's not allowing our emotions to carry us so far that we penetrate the boundaries of another. That's that's a way of thinking about this on an everyday basis. How can I throw a lifeline and keep standing on the shore instead of swimming out to the person?
1: It's also about separating my work from your work. And I'm in one of them. When when you're in an instance where you're going through a ton of stuff and everything is changing all at once, it would be very easy to come in and say, okay, I'm taking control here. And in fact, I did have a couple of times where people wanted to just step in and basically almost like, well, you haven't been handling your life very well. So I'm going to step in and, and we made a plan without talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) And here's what that plan is. And we're going to start executing it. And that was, that was not helpful for me because I needed to do the work to get my own plan together. And I needed to do the work to see that plan through. And I, as I've shared the reason for that is because I need to see Jesus come through. I can't be saved by other people right now. I need to be saved by Him, and I need to see that we can, that I can rely on Him and trust Him, and that is that is so paramount. Um, it's more paramount than fixing the problem, and it's also really important for me right now to spend time with people where I feel like I have a little more sense of control of my life. Because for the past four years, someone else has been making a lot of choices for me. And it's so it's really important. And I had to kind of stand up for myself and and say, this isn't this isn't helpful. And I I, these people love me, they love me. And this is why they they did this. They wanted to come in and say, "This is too much for you," and we're just going to come in and fix it for you, and um, make a plan and execute it. And but that's not really at the heart of what I needed.
0: Yeah, and this is really challenging. By the way, um, I'm thinking about this even in my own life. This is it's a shifting line of what is my work and what is your work. And you know, my wife has a, a lung disease and uh, an immune disorder. She's had for a while and. This issue of what's my work and what's her work comes up all the time, and I have to say I often obliterate that boundary, I overstep my boundary because I so much want to help, I so much want to come alongside and assist her in facing a really difficult thing in her life, and if I do that too much, she will let me know when she's feeling sort of suffocated and obliterated by my insistence on helping, and my, it, what it does is it undermines her own belief in her strength. And I know I have done that many times, because I haven't always understood the line between these things. So I'm a fellow traveler, I'm still learning myself, but the question is, what's my work and what's your work? And if that is embedded in our heart, that we at least consider that in these situations, we're moving toward the example of Jesus when we do that. Another one is a a willingness to introduce hardship into the lives of those we care about for the sake of love, because love intends to transform not simply cater to people. And you can see some of that in my story about the bus stop and how I wish that those mothers could see that the introduction of hardship into their sons' lives was actually a gift to them, a treasure to them, that could pay off down the line. And in Spiritual Grit, I have tons and tons of stories of what it looks like to introduce hardship into another's life for the sake of love. And one thing that that the research into Grit has uncovered is you know what it is and why it's so important, but what the researchers um, could not answer and did not want to go into this territory is how do you grow grit in another person? They came up empty with that, and the reason they did is is makes sense because if you're saying that to grow grit means to help introduce hardship into other people's lives, this is really holy stuff. You're 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 participating with Jesus in the transformation of another person. And this is nothing to take lightly, and the researchers were mute on this because, wow, how do we tell people to introduce hardship into another person's life that feels like giving somebody a loaded gun? So the idea here, though, is think about that bus stop and think about the metaphor of that, what we want to do, for instance, with our kids to allow appropriate hardship in their life so that it builds core strength for them later on. So that's introducing hardship in their life. Becky, why don't you take another one here?
1: Um, Well, so I I can give an example of just another example from my current journey because, you know, um, I'm living a lot of this right now. During the course of the time that this was all going on, the police were at my house a lot. Um, In fact, I think by the, the, the last time they were they had been there so many times they started joking with me about getting me a punch card
0: oh my gosh
1: <laughs> i love shout out to the fort collins police department they have just been so wonderful to me but i was i had called one of my family members and it was you know uh, okay so you know had to call the police again they just left here's what's going on and they said to me aren't you aren't you embarrassed
2: hmm. <laughs> aren't
1: you are, are you embarrassed? You know, you've you've had the police to your house so many times. Your neighbors have seen basically your life, the worst moments of your life on display. Um, you know, your people at your work know. She's like, I, I can't even imagine people at my work knowing this. That would be so horrible for my career. And do, do you feel a little bit embarrassed? And I was like, no, (laughs) (laughs) I don't feel embarrassed at all. And, um, but that was just such an example of, I think she was taking on too much of how I might be feeling and she was injecting her own feelings into that.
0: If she had been in your shoes. If she
1: had been in my shoes, she would have been so embarrassed and, you know she she doesn't really like to share that much about her life. And so this would have been so so embarrassing. And so that would be a great example of kind of where's that balance between is this an emotion that has more to do with me or is it emotion that has more to do with the person who's going through this? Yeah,
0: and that's and that's trying to own wherever you're coming from as you engage and approach somebody. And there are subtle ways like this one where we kind of make it about ourselves. We don't recognize we're yeah. doing that, but we're really making this about ourselves when we approach somebody that way. And I go back to what Brene Brown said that I thought was really good, that you approach this outside of judgment. And and judgment means I would be embarrassed if I was in your shoes. Are you embarrassed? There's a judgment yeah. lingering there. And that's what Brene Brown is saying. Uh, uh, try to avoid that. So again, the last thing I, I want to maybe mention is just thinking about emotional engagement with people that is authentic and courageous without enmeshment, that you're not enmeshed in the person's story, you still are able to stand outside of it. So that's maybe a way to think about it as well. I want emotional engagement without enmeshment, if you can think of that as a filter for this. So there's a few things that maybe can give you some traction with this and to to help with this. And Again, we recognize that some of this is, it sounds strange, and like I've never heard empathy talked about this way. And but that's really the point of this podcast. It's it's really to let Jesus define what love is for us, not us bring our definitions of love to Him. So we're trying to just simply experience Him and recognize what He's doing right now is loving. So if that's the definition of love, let's let that change our own definition of love when we ex- when we experience Him. Okay, well, gang, thanks for listening today. Remember, you can find out more information about the things we talked about today, the links that we promised you, but in further detail on the Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com page. Just uh, find season three and episode five there, and you can find the, the resources you're looking for there. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Life Tree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and Becky and I will talk to you again next time.
1: Bye.